without further ado, we're going to go to John chapter 3 and get into the word. John chapter 3. And I want to look at verse 14. Uh, and it'll lead into verse 16 as we get started here this morning. And let me give you just a quick preface. John chapter three, it begins with Nicodemus, a Pharisee coming in the middle of the night to Jesus. Uh, It's assumed that there's a question that's asked that Jesus answers by saying, most assuredly, I say to you, you cannot inherit the kingdom of God or enter the kingdom of God uh, unless you've been born again. And so there's this dialogue between Jesus and this really externally totally righteous, totally seems perfect on the outside, but there's a dialogue where Jesus is saying, look, it doesn't matter that you're born a Jew. doesn't matter that you're occupied as a Pharisee. doesn't matter that the outside of you is polished. You need to have a heart change. You need to have the work of the Holy Spirit transform you from the inside out. Uh, that was Nicodemus's problem. It was all the Pharisees' problem. It was all the children of Israel's problem. And it's the whole world's problem. And Jesus says that uh, it's there in verse 14 that he goes on to say, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, you might be wondering what's he talking about back in the book of Numbers, the children of Israel complained against God. And so God brought vipers and serpents to come out of the desert rocks and they began to bite the people and the people began to die from the serpent bites, uh, those plagues. And the Lord tells Moses, now fashion a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And anyone that looks at that serpent, all you got to do is look at the serpent, trust the Lord, and you'll be healed from the, the curse of the vipers. And, uh, and, you know, the insinuation is that there were people that just would not look. Nope, not going to look. Stubborn, not looking at the vipers, and they die. And then there were the people that say, you know what, all I know is this really is painful. I'm dying. People are dying. This is my only hope. I'm going to look to that bronze serpent and be healed. And Jesus references this to Nicodemus where Nicodemus doesn't understand. I got to be born again. And, and Jesus is just like, just, just listen to me. You just got to trust me in this. Just like you had to trust to look at the serpent. And here is where he says that just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the son of man be lifted up. And so he's speaking about how Jesus, the son of man, is the one that would be lifted up on the tree, lifted up on the pole, lifted up on the cross as a pic, uh, that serpent was a type or a picture of Jesus. And verse 15 says that whoever believes in Jesus or him should not perish but have eternal life. So that was where we ended two weeks ago when we were in John. Jesus uses uh, the typology of the book of Numbers and the serpent to show how Jesus is the true and better bronze serpent who would be lifted upon a pole at the cross at Calvary. And if anyone would look upon him, trust in Jesus, rest in Jesus, put your hope, your only hope in Jesus, then you will be born again. You'll be made a new creation in Jesus. You'll be able to enter in the kingdom of heaven. And then we stopped. That was the end of verse 15. Anyone who believes in him will not perish, but have uh, everlasting or eternal life. Now we get into verse 16. It's led into from verse 15. That's common, right? Of course it does. But there's actually context is what I'm getting at. Important context. Now, John 3.16. You guys, John 3.16, right? I mean, isn't that what Tim Tebow has in his little football, you know, ink below his eyes or something? You know, John 3.16, it's what the people hold up at the baseball games, you know? Uh, It it means something. Just that reference means something. John 3.16 is a well-known and beloved verse. And it confronts us to either receive or reject the love of God. Man, I'm going to be honest with you. Coming into John chapter 3 as a preacher, I was like, oh man, thank goodness John chapter 3 is coming along. 
It'll be a little bit of a rest. It'll be a little bit of a reprieve. Should be an easy study to preach, you know. And no, the book of John has not been that at all so far. John chapter 3, John chapter 3, verse 16. There's nothing easy about it. It is so deep. It is so vast. And there's been a huge burden on my heart that I don't miss the depth of implications that are in this verse and the depth of theology and the depth of doctrine. John 3.16 has long been celebrated as a super powerful, succinct declaration of the gospel. There are 31,102 verses in the Bible, and this might be the most popular single verse on evangelism. Now, something interesting about it is that probably 90% of the sources I read in my studying say that Jesus's conversation with Nicodemus ended after verse 15 and that John the evangelist kind of has the rest of this section as a little bit of a commentary, as a little bit of an explanation of Jesus and what he said in his conversation with Nicodemus. So, you know, that might not mean much to you, but often we read this as, oh, Jesus is still talking to Nicodemus when really probably the more plausible thing is John has taken a little step away from the narrative and he's giving us some some preaching, some sermon to go along with what Jesus told Nicodemus. And so uh, that that's very likely, maybe even most likely what happens is happening as we get here into verse uh, 16. It's an evangelist meditation is what D.A. Carson said. So let's check it out, right? Verse 16. Four. Okay. Four. Okay, I'll read just a little more for those of you that don't know what the four is there for. Okay. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. So that word for shows us that verse 16 is connected to verses 14 and 15 in the story about the serpent in the promise that if you would look to Jesus who would be lifted up, you would not perish but you would have everlasting life. Just as the new birth being born again, Jesus spoke with Nicodemus about uh, the acquisition of eternal life. It was grounded in the lifting up of the son. The lifting up of the son who is Jesus was the climax of the son's mission. But here in verse 16, we see that that is grounded in the love of, of God. John insists that the mission of the Son was directly connected to God's love. Now, we all know as we go throughout the year and we give good gifts to our friends, to our loved ones, to our bride. Uh, recently, Lindsay and I celebrated 18 years of marriage, and I really felt like I wanted to get her kind of a special thoughtful gift. Um, to me, it's kind of a milestone, just like when you turn 18 and I don't know, you can vote and you get drafted. I don't know. I'm like, well, Hey, our marriage can vote now, I guess. I don't know. And smoke a cigarette. I don't know. Okay. Just kidding. I think that's 21 now. Anyways, we got a few more years, honey. Um, but I ended up going into a, a local jewelry store here and looking through and ended up getting her this, uh, necklace that's made out of antique Roman glass from Israel. Uh, taken out of an archaeological dig. Uh, And it was just something I was like, man, special and thoughtful for my wife. That gift giving was motivated by affection for her, not out of just some begrudging obligation, you know. And that's what true gift giving is. Even the gift of Jesus as uh, a gift from the Father, it was given out of affection, out of love, not of some begrudging obligation. God was under no obligation to give, uh, but he loves. He's a loving God. And so uh, this word uh, for at the beginning, 
Uh, it speaks of the mission of the Son of God as, the, as that one lifted up uh, that, to save anyone who would believe in him. And it says that for God so loved the world. You might underline, I mean, you're going to underline almost every word here because it's so important. That word so is important as well. The Greek translation of this is so loved God that he gave his only begotten son. The word so emphasizes the intensity of the love or the extent of his love. Uh, I go to bed and I, or I tuck my children into bed and they're young. I have a four-year-old. I have a five-year-old going on six. I've got a 10-year-old going on 11 here. I've got a 13-year-old and with the young ones, it's especially fun. And you may know this as a parent. When you ask them, hey, Titus, how much do I love you? Like, do I love you this much? You know, and, and they don't have any concept of like how big the scale can get here. You know, so like Titus, how much does daddy love you? And, and Titus will kind of be like, I'll be like this much. And I'm kind of teasing him like, really, is this it? You know, and he'll be like, no, dad, this much, you know, and and then I kind of like blow his mind when I'm like, what about this much, you know? And he's like, whoa, dad, that's incredible, you know? And it's just the similar, it's similar to saying, Titus, your dad so loves you. You know, this is, it's a phrase that's used in intimate dialogue. You know, when you just have those conversations with your spouse and you just look into her eyes and caress her cheek and you just say, honey, I love you so much. I love you so much. And that's what John 3.16 communicates to us. Intensity of love. I love you with the intensity of the burning of a thousand suns, you know, is essentially what God is saying to us here. There's a great extent. There's, there's a greatness of the gift here that is shown to us that oftentimes in our Bible memorization, we forget God so loved the world, so loved the world. It's not sentimentality and mushy, but it's strong and it's costly. The Christian Standard Bible, that uh, it's a great, accurate translation going more on the edge of a paraphrase. The Christian Standard Bible writes it this way, that for God loved the world in this way, he gave. I want to say that again. For God loved the world in this way, he gave. Ian Murray said, persuading men and women of God's love is the great calling of the Christian minister. You know, lately it's just been on my heart in this crazy times of especially awful times that we're living in. You know, it's been my heart to Get on the streets and let this town know about the love of Jesus, the hope of Jesus, the life of Jesus. And so the first and third Saturdays of the month, we've been going out as a church with big signs, with beautiful artwork. And some of them are just block letters. You know, I I used my sign yesterday and it looked like a middle school kid. No offense, middle school kids. You know, middle schoolers are really getting good at their block letters. Mine looked like that, you know. Just real simple, the gospel laid out there just so that people driving through could hear of the love of Jesus. There's a lot of our signs that are about just the love of God, the love of Jesus, the hope that's in Jesus in his love and how great it is when people are driving by and it's just like a breath of fresh air to them to hear about the love of Jesus. I had a vision a few weeks ago. um, We... We used to have a above ground swimming pool because we're classy and uh, it died. It was like 15 years old and it died on us. But um, later, uh, just the last few years, we had a saltwater filter attached to it. Okay, I'm going to explain the saltwater filter process real quick. I'm not a chemist or anything like that, so it's probably wrong. But here's how I read it in the manual. Okay, so when you put salt in the saltwater The salt water will travel through this special machine that has copper 
uh, copper uh, little, I want to say iodes or something sticking out, right? Uh, and as the, as the uh, salt water comes through, those copper electrodes will burst and give out this little shot of electricity. And when that electricity hits the salt, it does this little puff and creates this little bit of chlorine. Poof. Just a tiny little poof of chlorine. So any algae or bacteria there, poof, it's killed. Well, there's a ton of water going through. There's a ton of current happening. And so it's just this really great way to purify your swimming pool. You got to buy yourself a saltwater filter. Okay, go for it. All right. And I had this picture of every time someone sees one of our signs, it's like this little poof of chlorine in our community that poof, the love of Jesus, the love of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the hope of Jesus, the community hearing about the love of Jesus, car after car after car after car. This is one of the greatest outreaches I've ever done because people show up for it. They don't even know they are, you know, they're driving by and you're like, how many people have we had show up today? As many people as have driven through Prineville. I know, isn't it great? And they're hearing about the love of Jesus. And, you know, and I'm going to talk about some of the reactions later, but many of them are just Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We needed that regularly. We have people get out of their car or roll their windows down and thank us. So one, one teenager, college, young college guy in Corvallis drove by when we did it there. And he said, now this is the way to protest. And I go, it's not a protest. It's a rally because we have got to get people to know the love of Jesus. And so The pulse of the heartbeat of God is evangelistic. If you don't have any verses memorized, memorize John 3.16. It's not cliche. It's evangelistic. And, And memorize it so that you can preach about the love of Jesus. For God so loved the world. The word love is agape, but it's agape. Oh, it's in the past tense. And it shows that that love happened. That there was an actual showing at one point in human history where God proved to us that he loves us. Augustine said centuries ago that the cross is the pulpit that preaches the love of God. Just like we've got here a pulpit with the word on it. It just preaches the word. So too does the cross. It is a picture. It is a message it is, a, it is a, a, a card of expression of the love of God. And if you uh, were following along with the worship music today on your phone, if you were reading the lyrics, I uploaded a couple screenshots from my notes uh, that have a bunch of verses that we're going to go through. I'm gonna, we're going to just go through some very powerful verses about the love of God. So if you have your smartphone or device, go on Facebook to Calvary Prineville or Calvary Chapel Prineville. It's our public page. And there's this, there's the pictures of all the lyrics of the songs that we're singing today. And just keep, keep browsing through those photos and you're going to be able to read some of my notes. You'll see how color coded and cute they are just for you. Okay. But it's been said that the love of God is not the consequence of the world's loveliness but of the sublime truth that God is love. It's not because of our beauty or our own self-righteousness, our inherent goodness, our worthiness, why Jesus died for us, but no, because he is a gracious, loving, merciful God of initiation. He's a God that pursues. He's a God that is love. And so if you found those verses, we're going to go through them here and we're going to start in Romans 5, 8. Okay. Romans 5, 8 says this, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So you wonder if Jesus loves you. You wonder if God loves you. Look at the cross. The cross is the pulpit that preaches the love of God. The cross is the demonstration that God loves us. So much so that while we were even a bunch of filthy sinners, he still loved us. 
He still died for us. What a great token of love that is. We're looking at John 15, 13. If you don't have your phone out, you can just flip a couple of chapters uh, to the right there. Um, in John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. And so we see that, uh, that Jesus, who is the second person of the Godhead, of the Trinity, Jesus is God. He created the world. We studied that in depth as a church. You know, it wasn't the father that loved the world and the son got the brunt end of the deal. The son never liked the world. What do you mean I got to be the one to like provide the sacrifice for the sins of these, you know, losers down here? No, the son also loves the world. Okay, of course, the son is God. God so loved the world. But we're not talking about the father right now. We're talking about the son. And he showed the greatest type of love by laying down his life for his friends. Let's go to Romans chapter 8, verse 35 through 39, where the question is asked, what should separate us from the love of Christ? Okay, okay. God loves me. Jesus loves me. Jesus died for me. But I probably have messed up a few too many times. And, you know, there's all sorts of wicked stuff going on in the world. Uh, You know, there's darkness. There's a big election coming up. I mean, surely there's a whole bunch of drama that should separate me from Jesus's love, like somehow. Right. And there's this great passage that says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he just goes through a whole list of things. Nothing's going to separate us. From the love of Christ. And I'm just going to read him real quick. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. And then hop down to uh, verse 38. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities or demons, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So you name it, nothing can separate us from the love of Jesus. Ephesians chapter two, verse one is the passage I want to read to you. In the first three verses, I've got it in red. I like to color code my notes because it helps me really understand what I'm reading as I'm, as I'm speaking it to you. The first three verses are the bad news. So, you know, red danger, all that. I don't know. It's bad. Red is bad. Okay. Uh, and then, uh, so it says this, And you, some of it's good, but the main part's bad. And you, he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince and power of the air. That's the devil, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we are by nature children of wrath, just as the others. So that's the bad news, okay? That's why I had it read. It's the bad news. Following after the devil, conducting ourselves in the lusts of our flesh. We're children of wrath. And then, verses 4 through 9, I have in purple. Purple for me always references Jesus and his royalty. And here he comes and he saves the day. But God, who is rich in mercy... Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. So did you notice there? But God, who is rich in mercy. And then listen, because of the great love, such great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead as those sinners, He made us alive together with Christ. And then verse six, and he raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So wonderful message of the gospel there and of the love of Jesus. Now hop over and you can follow along on my notes there if you've got it with you. First John four, nine through 11. The word manifested is going to be used there. And manifest means to show up. Okay, to show up. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us. It showed up toward us. That God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. 
And this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So there's the truth in doctrine that Jesus loves us and sent uh, that God the Father loved us, sent God the Son to pay for our sins. And then also there's implication from it in verse 11 that if there is such a great love of God towards us, then we ought to be loving towards one another. That's the implication or the imperative that comes from knowing the gospel. Look down at uh, also 1 John chapter 4, verse 16. It says, And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. So there's the love that God has for us. And then three verses later, 1 John 4, 19, we love him because he first loved us. So not only do we love others because he love, uh, loves us, but we also love him back. We reciprocate that love. We obey him. To, to love him is to obey him, Jesus says. And so we love him, but it all started with his initiation of love toward us. Is anyone keeping track of how many times I say love today? It's a lot. Um, I really love the word love. It's one of the most loving words. That, okay. Uh, look at uh, Titus 3, 4. But when the kindness and the love of God, our Savior toward man appeared. We know that it's through Jesus that the kindness and the love of God toward us appeared. And then Revelation, this is our last in this section. Revelation 1, 5. There's kind of this uh, worship proclaimed at the end of that verse to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. And so what does the love of God do? It washes us. It cleanses us from our sins. Uh, there was such love that Jesus shed his blood so that anyone that believed in him would have their sins washed away. Okay. Let's look at the inclusive nature of John 3.16. It's in the next word that God so loved the world. Okay, The world here shows that there's no elitism in, uh, in the gospel. Even though there is a truth of the sovereignty of God in predestination, in election, God is sovereign in calling and choosing at the same time, part of the mystery is that he also loves the whole world, that he desires that none should perish. Some will perish, but he desires that none will perish. He loves the whole world. In the Greek, it's the cosmos. It speaks of the universe. It speaks of mankind. It speaks of those that God made in the image of himself. D.A. Carson says, even so, God's love is to be admired, not because the world is so big and includes so many people, but because the world is so bad. Because the world is so bad. That's why the love of God is so incredible. F.F. Bruce wrote, the essence of the saving message is made unmistakably plain in language which people of all races, cultures, and times can grasp. And so effectively, it is set forth in these words that many more probably have found the way of life through them than through any other biblical text. When somebody reads the Bible, if they're in East Asia or Southeast Asia, if they're in India, if they're in Russia, if they're in the Ukraine, if they're in Europe, if they're in the cosmopolitan areas of the United States, if they're in some of the slums of the world, they crack open John 3.16 and they see that they are included in the love of Jesus and that there is hope for them. John 3.16 is 
one of the most anti-racist verses that there is. Racism has zero place in Christianity. When we read the gospel and we understand the Bible and the design of God and the Imago Dei and that he created man in his image, then we know that man has value because of God's gracious creation. Man has value. Black lives matter. You know, if we lived in World War II and the Jews were being led off to the concentration camps and somebody said, hey, Jewish lives matter, we wouldn't be all up in arms. Oh, Jewish life, whatever. All lives matter. We know all lives matter. We're careful in our saying of Black Lives Matter because it's a movement that's tied to many unbiblical worldviews that we as Christians can't get behind that. However, we believe that black lives do matter and that God loved the world so much and God loved black lives so much that God died for black lives. And God died for Native American lives. And God died for Asian lives. God died for Irish lives. All of this is true. You name it, God loved the whole world. And on our most desperate moment, when we are under the weight of our sin, we, no matter what our race, no matter what our gender, we can look at John 3.16 and say, for serpent looking up at the serpent be healed look up at the son of man be healed for god so loved so loved the cosmos there is an inclusivity of the love of god john calvin said although there's nothing in the world deserving god's favor he nevertheless shows he is favorable to the whole lost world when he calls all without exception to faith in Christ, which is indeed entry into life. He calls people to faith in Christ because he loves them. John Murray wrote that the passion, let me, let me set this up real quick. Um, there's a, there's a branch of Christianity that values and treasures the sovereignty and the glory of God so much that they have a theological pendulum that kind of swings to an extreme to where they value God choosing men so much that they, they lose sight of evangelism. Well, why do I need to go evangelize and preach to the lost? When God has chosen them, and if God has chosen them, then they'll be saved. And if then they don't need me, and I don't, and so I don't. I'm not needed to preach the gospel. And not only that, I don't want to accidentally preach the gospel to someone that God didn't choose, and then that guy gets saved, and then it all just gets thrown out. Okay, that's a caricature of our own imagination that's not grounded in Scripture. Okay, and so it's a true thing to be able to maybe bring that pendulum back to a good biblical medium. When we look at John three sixteen, and we say, yes, God, the love, the elect. Yes. God is loving the chosen, but God has loved the whole world. All right. And his blood is able to atone for the whole wide world. Not only we who believe, but, but there's hope for those that don't believe yet. As the uh, famous evangelist DL Moody said, God save the elect. And then elect some more. Lord, save people. You love the whole world. And so John Murray wrote, the passion for missions is lost when we lose sight of the passion of the evangelist. It's a fact that many persuaded, as they rightly are, of the particularism of the plan of salvation and of its various corollaries. Sorry. And they found it difficult to proclaim the full, free, and unrestricted overture of gospel grace. They have labored under inhibitions arising from fear that in doing so, they would impinge upon the sovereignty of God and its saving purposes and operations. The result is that though 
formerly assent to the free offer of the gospel, they lack freedom in the presentations of its appeal and of its demand. And so with that, um, they're afraid to say, hey, you know, what must I do to be saved? And, and they would say, hey, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. They, they don't have that freedom to say something so firm and set in stone uh, because they feel like, well, that's if you're elect or that's if you've been chosen and we never know. And so by the, you know, there's a lot there. And it's interesting, Alistair Begg, who's uh, one of my favorite preachers, he's from Scotland, but he preaches in Ohio and has for about 35 years. Uh, he was referencing Calvary chapels and how Calvary chapels are just evangelist churches. I mean, they just preach the gospel full and free and with the hope that God loved the world, hear the gospel, believe in the gospel, trust in Jesus, look to him and be healed and be saved. And Alistair Begg, he's talking about that and he says, you know, these Calvary Chapel guys, he says, all it takes to be a Calvary Chapel pastor is you got to have a pair of jeans and a Bible. Like, that's all it takes. So Joe... You know, really anybody here, you know, but he says, you know, these Calvary Chapel guys, they go out and they preach the gospel and they actually believe people are going to get saved. He's preaching to a bunch of reformed pastors when he's talking about Calvary Chapel and he goes, this is something we need. It's something we need. Guys, go preach the gospel. God so loved the world. Do you know God loves your coworker? That coworker that you can't stand was made in the image of God and needs the gospel preached to them so that they cannot perish but have everlasting life. Your sisters, your brothers, your cousins, your coworkers, the guy at the gas station, the person checking you out at Wegner's or Ray's, God loves them. God loves them. And though the world is wicked and is under God's wrath, God still loves the world. So much so that he gave his only begotten son. He gave something. He granted and produced his son. He allowed his son to pay the deposit for our sins. He let his son experience the fullness of the wrath of a holy and just God against sinners so that the world can experience the mercy and grace and love of God. You know what's interesting about the cross of Calvary? is that both the wrath of God and the mercy of God are displayed. God takes sin seriously. He takes your sin seriously. He will judge your sin. And so Jesus came into the world so that he could take your sin upon his shoulders so that you wouldn't have to have the wrath of God against sin against you. Jesus came as a substitute to take your place so that the wrath of God would not burn hot against you forever. Instead, he came as one who had never sinned, pure and holy and blameless, tempted in every way that you or I have ever been tempted, yet he didn't sin. And he was offered up like a spotless lamb and sacrificed so that anyone who would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. There was something special about this gift. It was a unique gift. God didn't have, you know, three sons or seven sons or a thousand sons to give away. There was one person of the Trinity who is referred in the scripture as the son and God gave him. The son is like the best friend to the father, as well as the spirit. John chapter 17 talks about the relationship that they have. And he gave his best friend. He gave his best offering. He gave his best and only son. There are reflections of the story of Abraham in Genesis 22. This is also, I think, in your um, little slideshow that you have on Facebook there. If you're following along with us, I don't even know if that's working. Is that working? Anybody? No one's looking a couple of people. Okay. And you might remember when Genesis chapter 22, it says it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, take now your son, 
your only son, Isaac, whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him. There's a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will tell you. And so Abraham is and see if can you see the picture here? Abraham is to take his son, his one and only son whom he loves. And then he's supposed to take him to the same land that Jesus is going to live in, the land of Mount Moriah, and he's to offer him up as a sacrifice. And so Abraham takes his son up to the area of Jerusalem. Jerusalem sits upon Mount Moriah. It's the same mountain that Jesus would die on, on the cross. Abraham takes his one and only son that he loves, and he has his son carry the wood up the mountain, carry the wood upon his back up the mountain. And just as Abraham is about to sacrifice his son, an angel says, stop. Now I know that you trust me and you'll obey me in anything. Don't worry. God will provide the lamb. In fact, the original Hebrew is God will provide himself the ram. And it was there at the cross that the one and only son carried the wood of the cross up Mount Moriah and was provided an atonement for sin. In Romans chapter five, verse 10, also in your little slideshow there, for if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. In Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? The fact that this gift that, that God gave of his son was his son shows us how vast his love is and that he has nothing but blessing in mind, nothing but protection, nothing but uh, reward in mind. For those who are his children, nothing but blessing. It's in the classic Christmas Isaiah passage, 9, 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And Jesus is that gift. Wrapping up this verse and wrapping up our study, it says that whoever believes in him, Notice also that whoever shows that wide aspect of who can be included into salvation, who can be included into this gift that's given. And this just shows even again, like, man, you know what? Yes, there's the sovereignty of God. Yes, there's the election of God. Yes, there's the predetermining of God. And yet it's part of a mystery. It's tension. That's a good tension that holds up the doctrines of the Bible in that tension. Also, whoever, whoever, or in the King James version, whosoever. There's a band out of uh, Raul Reese's church. And I believe that um, one of the key lead members of that band is uh, Raul Reese's son, down in California, uh, they're a band called the Whosoevers. And they go around and they just play concerts of evangelism, just that people would get saved. And they're all kind of, you know, they got the dreads and they're skaters and they're, you know, they wear black t-shirts a lot of times. And they're just like, guys, if we can get saved, you can get saved. God saves to the uttermost, or as it's been said, God saves to the guttermost, <laughs> He saves the whosoevers. Is there anybody here? Like you maybe don't feel like super polished, super spectacular. You're not like the bee's knees. You're not like God's gift towards mankind. Is there anyone who thinks that? And, and maybe no, no, I actually think I'm God's gift towards the earth. Um, I'm surprised it miswrote it here. Uh, God gave me to the earth. So, okay. Of course, right? That's us. Does anyone here just feel like you're the whosoever? That's good news. Because if you feel lost, if you feel trapped in your sin, if you know as you lay your head down on your pillow at night that you've got to give an account to God for the things you've done and said, the places you've been, 
the things you've touched and drank and smoked and your meditations of your heart, all of these different things. And you know that you're in big trouble. There's good news for you. If you're a whosoever, today you can believe in him. And that's the next part of the verse. The next part of the verse shows us that there has got to be a decision. There's got to be a decision. That you must think the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus to be true. And you've got to put faith in him. You've got to trust him. John puts on us the responsibility to believe. If you're here today and this is your first time to Calvary Chapel, you might have wondered, you know, what are these Calvary Chapel people all about? What are we all on about around here? Well, we're all about what the Bible's all about. And that is seeing unbelieving people become committed followers of Jesus Christ. It's about people making that decision to either follow him or unfollow him. To follow him or walk away from him. And it's our hope today that you would believe on Jesus. One Bible translator was deep in a jungle working on a Bible translation in the South Americas. And as he's going through the jungle and he's hacking through the jungle, he'd been trying to find a word in that native tongue for the word believe. There just wasn't anything really in that native language that worked for believe. And so as, as they're hacking their way through the jungle, he's walking with a line of the natives and they take a break and they're all so tired from w- walking through the jungle. One of the natives hops up on this giant fallen log, this fallen tree. He hops up on this fallen tree and he's so tired that he just lays down on the tree, drops his machete and just lays there with his arms and his legs sprawled around this tree. And he rests. And, he, and this Bible translator goes, that's it. What's he doing? Well, he's resting. That's the word that we're going to use for believe. Because when you believe in Jesus and you believe in the gospel, you stop hacking. You stop coming up with your own tools and your own ways that you're going to be right before God. And you just lay it all down and rest in Jesus and what Jesus has done. And if you would believe, it says you will not perish. You will not perish. Do you know where you're going to go when you die? Are you going to go to everlasting life? Or are you going to go to everlasting torment? Are you going to perish or be destroyed? Being utterly destroyed. I read a man named Carter this week, and actually he was quoting a guy named Whitmer in his book, The Last Enemy. We're almost done. Stick with me here. But Whitmer wrote, you are going to die. Take a moment to let that sink in. You are going to die. One morning, the sun will rise and you won't see it. Birds will greet the dawn and you won't hear them. Friends and family will gather to celebrate your life. And after you're buried, they'll return to the church for ham and scalloped potatoes. Soon your job and your favorite chair and your spot on the team will be filled by someone else. The rest of the world may pause to remember. It will give you a moment of silence if you were rich or well-known. But then it will carry on as it did before you arrived. You are going to die. Where will you go? Will you perish? Or, closing it out, will you have everlasting life? Eternal, age-long life. Do you see it in verse 15? It's almost a repeated phrase from verse 15 to verse 16. Will not perish but have eternal life, will not perish, but have everlasting life. You know, Duracell with the little bunny with the drums promises the longer lasting battery, but it does not promise the everlasting battery. Everlast. 
promises that. Anyways, <laughs> everlasting life. Here we have God, the Almighty Authority, so loving the world with the mightiest motive that He gave His only begotten Son, which is the greatest gift that whoever, which is the widest welcome, would believe in him. Guys, that's the easiest escape. What do I have to do to get out of this mess that I'm in? You don't have to do anything. Lay down the machete, give it all up, and trust in Jesus. You will not perish, which is the greatest divine deliverance, and you'll have everlasting life, which is a priceless possession. For God the Father loved the world so much. F.F. Bruce in closing said, if there's one sentence more than another which sums up the message of the fourth gospel, it is this. The love of God is limitless. It embraces all mankind. No sacrifice was too great to bring its unmeasured intensity home to men and women. The best that God had to give his only son he gave. We're going to have the worship team come back up. Thinking of that, Titus, how much does daddy love you? This much? This much? Guys, stretch your arms out as wide as they'll go. And what do you see? What in history are you reminded of? You're reminded of the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, also the Son of God, totally man, totally God, being nailed to a Roman implement of torture and execution, his arms spread out as far as they'll go as a, as a pulpit to preach to you, to demonstrate to you the love of God, the love of God.